you just watch the premiere screening and you come out and your friend asks you, right, what's the movie all about? How would you answer? It'd be tempting to say it was all about Samuel, right? Because he's the title character, but actually Samuel dies halfway through the first book. What we really saw in 1 Samuel is the working out of this big question that was in the head of the Israelites. Who will rule over us? So Samuel's story is put in as an introduction so that he can bring in the story of his young shepherd boy who will be anointed as God's king against the backdrop of Saul, the king that the Israelites have chosen. So this is why, despite the ending of 1 Samuel um, seeming like a sad ending, it was in fact the setting up of the narrative in order to bring forth the answer to this hope that the Israelites had. The rising up of the true king who will save his people, David. So, the book of Samuel, first and second, is concerned about showing God's people about the kingship that God is going to establish and how God's going to use that king for his purposes and even for us to know that God is showing us that hint there how through a king that God is going to set up, God is actually do a greater thing and work out his plan for the entire universe. So as we come to 2 Samuel, we can see that the curtain opens up and the scenes opens with this verse. Verse 1, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Now, it's just a simple description, but this verse helps us to link in what the author wants us to remember about what have happened earlier in 1 Samuel. Because 1 Samuel, you see, had two endings in a sense. Right? If you flip back, you look at the last chapter, that is where we see Israel defeated and Saul killed. But actually, we should also see the second last chapter as another ending for the story because that is the story of David and his valiant rescue of his people from the Amalekites, right? And actually, this has been the style of the author of First and Second Samuel, right? Uh, what he was doing there is he kept on switching between two scenes, what's happening with David, what's happening with Saul, back and forth, back and forth. And the goal is for us to look at both these stories in parallel so that there is tension, there is comparison between David and Saul. So, in the conclusion to 1 Samuel, we find out that while Saul had an ignominious defeat, we see in that second last chapter, David showing us that he is a man that does what is right and who trusts in God. And so, in 2 Samuel, Saul's story has ended, and now the author is zooming in on David with the purpose of showing us his trajectory of growth and his ascension then, as the true king of Israel that God has chosen. So, as we see David in Ziklag, here in verse 1, we see that while Saul was fighting and dying, David was in another place, and he was dealing with salvation of his people in his own way. So, the point here is, David is not sitting around doing nothing while Saul was fighting for his people, right? David had his own thing, he was saving his own people, but in a limited way, but this still puts David in a good light. 
But, but in verse 1, we also see David, secretly anointed king chosen by God, was in Ziklag instead of where I would have expected God's king to be, which is Jerusalem. Right? Now, that's a long story. But if you do go back to 1 Samuel and you trace back, why is David in Ziklag? Huh? You will see at one point David actually messed up. He doesn't trust God. And then he takes up matters into his own hand. And because of that, he ended up working for the Philistines and living in Philistine territory. So we see here that David is in this bad place because he's still not perfect. Like he's not completely faithful, right? But of course, fortunately, he used his position to further the cause of the Israelites. He became a double agent. But since we can't escape the fact that David is in Ziklag because he's not perfect, so the author puts in here to just set our expectations so that we will now come to see David from this place in Ziklag, the not-so-good place. What is going to happen with David? How is it going to turn out now that Saul is dead? And knowing that David has a heart that is towards God, that David is repentant, and then you have this question, so is God going to give him like a proper comeback? Will God bring David up from Ziklag and give him the throne that Saul has evacuated? So as we go through 2 Samuel, this is what the author is trying to show us. David's redemption arc, he's rising up to take up the throne and bring salvation to his people. Right? A little lengthy, but this is the setting and the beginning of the story. So with that, the scene is set, the movie plays, action, and we see in verse 2. It is the third day, a man appears in David's court. And this man came from Saul's camp, his clothes were torn and there's dirt on his head. Either he's in mourning or he's come from a terrible place like a battlefield, and he saw David. And immediately he bowed down to him and paid David homage. Now, this is interesting because this man is treating David as if he's a king. Now, as much as we know that David is God's anointed king, that's not something that everyone knows, especially for an Amalekite. So we have to wonder, wow, who's this guy and why is he bowing down to David in such a way? <coughs> so the narrator tells us, right? The narrator tells us this to make us wonder, actually, what's going on with this guy? Does he know David and respect him so much that he comes to David in this manner? Has God revealed something to him? Or does he have his own agenda? Let's read and find out. So we see in verse 3, David asks him, where has he come from? And the sad story comes up. The man claims that he has escaped from the camp of Israel, a camp that was taken over by the Philistines and destroyed. He is a refugee from the battlegrounds. And in verse 4, he gives a report. The people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Now the terrible news finally hits David as he finds out what happens to Saul. And what really makes this news terrible is that Jonathan was David's good friend. He died and so many of the Israelites who David has shown great care for were defeated. Now, David hearing this, wanted confirmation. Maybe he's thinking, can this man be trusted? So in verse 5, he asks him for no details. How did you find this out? Then the man tells his story in verse 6. He says, by chance, he happened to be on Mount Gilboa, which implies he's not a soldier fighting with Saul's men. I just happened to be going there. And then he claimed that he saw Saul leaning on his spear, surrounded by enemy chariots and horsemen. And in verse 7, 
Saul called out to him. This man introduced himself. I'm an Amalekite. Now, Saul, interestingly, has been tasked by God to kill all the Amalekites. But since here is an Amalekite in front of Saul, it just shows us that Saul didn't do a good job of it. Now, if we think about it, one of the things that led to Saul losing God's favor in 1 Samuel is this issue of how Saul dealt with the Amalekites. So maybe there's a hint of something here. Then, the story continues, and in verse 9, Saul commands this Amalekite, stand beside me and kill me, because Saul is in anguish. And perhaps he's imagining, right, the horrors of capture, torture, mutilation, humiliation, if the, he falls into the Philistine hands. It's not going to be a good death. And so he wanted the Amalekite to finish him off. Then in verse 10, he tells David that he killed Saul, and he did it because he's not sure if Saul could live after he had fallen. And maybe he's trying to imply that like, Saul was actually very heavily injured. The only reason standing because he's leaning on his spear. And so the implication is this is mercy killing, like service towards Saul. Right then, the man took out and shared the symbol of Saul's office, his crown and his armlets, right? And he took them out and gave them to David. And it seems like he considers David as the next person after Saul, to whom the kingship is meant to pass on. And so this explains why in the beginning he bowed down before David as if he's a king. And so we hear this powerful and touching story of the end of Saul, right? Except there's one problem. It's all a bunch of lie. We know the true account of the death of Saul from the narrator's explanation in the ending of 1 Samuel. So from there, we know that this man is just cooking up a story for David. The Amalekite was lying. He was never there to kill Saul because Saul's armor-bearer himself saw Saul fall on his sword, take his own life. There was no mention of random Amalekite visitors trip-sizing around the battlefield. And so here, what's happening is this narrator subtly telling us, this Amalekite is lying. And that helps us then to see this motivation in coming to David, right? He takes Saul's crown and armband, the symbol of his kingship, and interestingly, he brings it to David, when actually Saul's family still got people, still got relatives. And on a side note, it's ironic, right? Saul didn't deal with the Amalekites when God told him to destroy them. And now, an Amalekite robs his corpse, right? So, think about it, right? This, Amalek this Amalekite guy, he knows that Saul hated David. And now that Saul is dead, and David has the most support of the people, and, and he knows, right, the people have been singing songs about David. David is a heroic figure to the Israelites. He puts everything together, then he comes before David and bows down, right? And the Amalekite is just saying that, okay, this guy David is the best bet to become king, and his purpose in coming here, to bowing down, bringing the crown and the armband, is to curry favor. He's hoping for a big reward from David. Now, most likely, this man was a looter, right? He hangs around battlefield and then steals from the dead. And having been extraordinarily lucky that day, he's caught a big catch from the dead body of Saul. And he must have thought, what's the way to get the most value out of this? Now, if you 
as you're walking around happened to find this really expensive ostrich leather bag that was lost. Now, you can take it, you can sell it, and you sell it as a second hand and make some money. But actually, if you're smart, and you know, wait, this one uh, is a bag that belongs to a political VIP. Then you go to that person, maybe you exaggerate a bit, oh, you know, I have to fight out seven fellas uh, in order to get this bag so I can pass it back to you. Then you flatter them and say, well, I really respect you, I'll bow down a bit, and you will want to become their good friend, right? Because your hope is not only for reward, but also for that connections. Because when you have that, you can get contracts, you can manage money for them, and soon you have your own yard. You can be a huge multi-million dollar country hopping tycoon, having wild parties around the world. So in a sense, it is this greed that has motivated the Amalekite. He's hoping to be set up, to be connected to David and to be rewarded. If David is going to rise, he attaches himself to David, hoping to rise also. So think about it, right? even telling this lie that he killed Saul is crafted with the purpose of making David feel indebted to him, right? After all, he's thinking, look, David must be overjoyed that someone finally killed Saul, right? He can have peace now. And he would probably give a reward to the guy who did that, isn't it? The guy who spat Saul on his way. So we also won't be wrong to think that this would be a good news for David, isn't it? Right? Saul was the guy who made David's life really tough. He had to run away, hide, spent most of his youth in fear and hiding. Saul wanted to murder David. And David, all he has done is show loyalty to Saul. And that's the expectations we might have. But look at verse 11. See how David responds. He hears the news. And then verse 11, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And this is shocking because David shows that he has no bitterness towards Saul. Now, if anyone had a reason to mock and jeer the death of Saul, it would be David. But here we see David is righteous. He shows respect for Saul because he's the king that God has put in. For all his faults, David was faultless in how he treated Saul. He was loyal and obedient in all things, actually, in 1 Samuel. The only thing that he disobeyed was when he had to run, run away. And he only ran away because it's to save his life. When David had a chance to kill Saul, he didn't do it. He said, he will not touch the Lord's anointed. So, David respected this office that Saul held, the office of king, because he was given by God. And so with that, we come to the final scene of the story, right? He prioritized rightly, he mourns the death of the king and his friend, then David comes back to business. He questions the Amalekite. Ask him, where did he come from in verse 13? And guess his strange answer, right? Instead of telling where he comes from, he identifies as an Amalekite, the son of a surgeoner. Maybe it's just to show that he's really proud of his Amalekite background. Maybe it's just for the narrator to hint like, this guy Amalekite is something important, right? But regardless, having heard this, David then asked a question. And this question must have shocked the Amalekite. Because in verse 14, David asked, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Now, obviously, he's not expecting this, right? 
here he is having killed the one who persecuted David and instead of praise and reward, David asks the question in this way. Now, actually this shouldn't shock us, right? Because if you remember 1 Samuel, David actually had many opportunities to destroy Saul. And in fact, in one point in 1 Samuel, David himself said this, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. May I never lift my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And this was when David had a chance to have Saul killed. Right? So this Amalekite, in trying to cheat David by saying that he killed Saul with his own hands in order to get patronage, he has made a serious miscalculation. Instead of rewarding him with what he would have wanted, David rewarded him with what his claim deserved. So David ordered one of his men to kill the Amalekite because he has not respected the office of God's chosen king. He has raised his hand against God's chosen king. It was only God who had the right to determine Saul's destiny. So the Amalekite received Israelite justice with this pronouncement in verse 16. Your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. With that, the Malachites die, and the story is set up for the next story arc, which we will see next week. But what do we learn here? Well, firstly, we definitely see that right, David is portrayed as a righteous ruler. He responds in a godly manner when Saul's death is heard. Now, he had every reason to be bitter with Saul, but he does not because he sees that Saul is put in place by God. So it shows us something about David's theology, right? So if you have to put it in words, this is what his theology is on that. You have put Saul there, Lord, so I will seek to submit to him to the best of my ability. And if he's not good, then your hand and your hand only must deal with him, not me. And this theology explains why he's mourning Saul's loss, why he brings justice to the Amalekite. David rightly respects the office, even if the man Saul himself was far from admirable. So we see here, David is the man who does what is right. Of course, David is not perfect, right? As the story goes in 2 Samuel, you see him messing up. But if David, with how... He sometimes fails, he's not perfect, he's set up as a good example. He's set up for the sake of the Israelites reading this and, oh, okay, we got hope in David. Huh? If he is set up in this way, when he is only a shadow of this perfectly righteous king who comes after him, then how much better is this king who comes, who's perfectly righteous, Jesus Christ? And if David brings joy and salvation to his people, even with his failures, even with his weaknesses, how much more will this king, the one who is greater than David, bring to his people? That was the hope that the people had when they read about David's stories, when they heard the prophets prophesying about one greater than David who is to come, the Messiah. And that is exactly what Jesus delivered when he came. He freed his people from sin and death. And Jesus did everything right. And he saw God rightly. 
to the point that he declared, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. So David here points forward to the greater David who is going to come, who has come as Christ Jesus. Second point, I guess we can, it's fairly uh, obvious here, but we can point out, right, that lying is bad. But lying to God, lying to someone who represents God, is very dangerous. We saw in the New Testament reading how Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the apostle, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and immediately they fell dead. Their Malachite lied to David and died. And interestingly, if he had been truthful, if he admitted that I didn't kill him, I just saw the body, I took it and I give it to you now, lah, then he wouldn't have died, right? So why did he die? Why did he lie? Because of his greed. He wanted to get things. He wanted to become great. So do see, do be careful where your greed leads you. And seek to be truthful in all things. And think about it, right? For those who think they can lie to God's ultimate king, in our uh, reading today from the gospel, we saw how Jesus looked at those who came saying they have done great work and he rejected them saying, depart from me, I never knew you. So make sure that you are not lying to yourself about your commitment to follow Christ. Come before God as a sinner who's repentant, not as a person who managed to lie to yourself, think that you're self-righteous, and come before God with a puffed-up chest. And finally, one more thing that I learned from this, and I'm not saying this as an Old Testament foreshadowing of the New Testament here, not like the way David points forward to Christ, but this is more of a similarity in theme that I notice, right? See, Saul didn't take God's command seriously to destroy the Amalekites, and he gets something bad happening to him from the Amalekites. Israel also had the similar problem. God had told them to destroy the enemies in the promised land. They didn't take it seriously, and they suffered the price of that. And these people that God have again and again said, destroy them, cast them out. They are to be removed because they would corrupt God's people. They would lead God's people away from God. They end up causing evil to the Israelites, right? And it does seem cruel to deal harshly with them. But the point is, if God commands total destruction, then that is true wisdom. The Israelites did not obey and they paid for it. Saul did not obey and the Amalekites stole from his corpse. So think about it. What is the thing that God has told us Christians to remove from our life, to run away from, to fight with everything you have, to not compromise with? Can you guess? It's sin. God had commanded for us to do total war with sin, to do away with it. And unless we pay heed to God, unless we drive away sin from our life, we will be inviting our own peril on our head. Saul did not deal with the Amalekites, and an Amalekite dealt with Saul at the end. He robbed his corpse. If we do not deal with our sin, then sin will deal with us once we are dead. Because if you don't deal with sin, 
Now, sin won't take away your earthly treasures. In fact, sin will probably give you more earthly treasures. But when you are dead, like Saul was dead, sin will come and take away your treasure. Sin will come and take away that crown of glory that was meant to be yours, that actually is not because you have compromised yourself by accepting sin and rejecting the grace of God. So do be warned. Fight sin. Trust that what God has commanded you to do, He commands for your good. There is no compromise. There's no, it's just a little bit love. Fight sin. Bring it to God. Seek His mercy and forgiveness. And don't nurture and grow your sin. Deal with your sin or your sin will deal with you. As the Amalekite dealt with the corpse of Saul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, have mercy on us for our weaknesses. Help us, Father, to see in Christ the assurance that we have. The King will bring us righteousness. Help us, Father, to not let greed bring us into ruin. And help us, Father, to listen to your word, to drive away the things that you have told us to drive away so that we do not fall to sin and stumble. Have mercy on us, Father, in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.